This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. May God write it on our hearts. We may not sin against him. Well, Merry Christmas from Acts chapter 27. I'm glad we sang about the incarnation because this is about as far away from a Christmas text as you can get. But however, I do hope to show you that there is a bit of a Christmas miracle that happens. You likely already see it there, but studying this will help us. There's a hymn writer who wrote this one time. Listen, be still my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he lived below. God remains God, and God remains good, even amidst the fearful wind and waves that we face, both literally and figuratively, in this life. Jesus, just as that famous hymn says, is the God of the wind and the waves. In the Old Testament book of Jonah, a violent storm, like in our text, is thrown at a sleeping, rebellious Jonah by God himself. God steers the storm at the ship that Jonah is sleeping in, in the hole of the ship as it's tossed in the storm. It was the hand of the Lord that showed up and calmed the waters when rebellious Jonah was thrown into the ocean and the sailors, who were pagan, believed. In Mark 4, another violent storm shows up in the Gospels. This one thrown at a sleeping Jesus, not a sinner at all like Jonah, but rather one who rests in sinlessness, in perfection, even as the wind and the waves roar around him. Jesus is surrounded in that story by fearful disciples, scared, awakening him, saying, do you not care that we would perish? And Jesus stood up, and like the Lord had calmed the seas when Jonah's flesh hit the water, so the Son of God spoke, and it was calm. As he spoke to the wind and waves, peace, be still, it happened. And guess what? The disciples believed. Today's lengthy narrative is really a gut-wrenching journey through the journal of Luke. It's very much personal. Luke lived this. And as we sail the high, stormy seas with Luke today, as we think about this text together, we need to see that just as Jonah's shipmates couldn't see God through their pagan unbelief, or just as Jesus' disciples couldn't see Jesus for the fear of what was happening in the storm that they were in, in this text, Paul's shipmates could not see Jesus, who he believed in, for their own pride and eventual fear as well. You see, unbelief and fear and pride will always keep you fixated on the storm that is in your life rather than Jesus, who is even riding over the top of the storm. I want to be real this morning. Today, some of you are in a storm right now. Life is bleak. It is difficult. You feel maybe 
at times like the 14 days of work with no food, Paul's companions trying to see hope, but hope fails to shine. Some of you may be there. My question to you in this sermon will be, will you look to Jesus? Others of you today are maybe on your way there. You're enjoying the possibly short journey we're going to uncover from Fair Havens to what you think is the next destination. But maybe one phone call or maybe one event, maybe one thing could happen to you in the next few weeks and you would be dangerously heading into the open waters in the storm yourself. That could be some of you. I don't say that threateningly or to scare anyone, but that's real. The rest of us, the rest of you may enjoy smooth sailing for a long time to come. Obviously, I would pray as your pastor for that to be the case for all of you. But it doesn't mean that even if you're there and maybe there isn't a lot of suffering ahead, that the storm may not come and so we should be prepared. This narrative really examples for us trusting that Jesus is God and that God is the one who controls the winds and the waves. Literally in this text, and I think Luke wants the reader to understand in all things. God will accomplish his purposes. Well, we'll look at it in three movements. We can call them journal entries. That's what I'm going to call them. Three entries that Luke makes for us intentionally. Entry one, and I'm going to repeat these, but entry one is persistent pride always ignites sovereign salvation. It's going to be our first point. Persistent pride always ignores, excuse me, ignores uh, prudent patience. Sorry about that. I meant to, I switched my two points here. They're both here. Persistent pride always ignores prudent patience. That's going to be verses 1 through 12. And in this first point, we will contrast the centurion and Paul. We're going to contrast the centurion and Paul. Secondly, we'll look at entry number two, which is the serious suffering in this passage, serious suffering always ignites a sovereign salvation. Don't worry, I'll repeat that when we get there. In that second part, verses 13 through 38, the largest section of this scripture, we're going to contrast the situation that Paul is in with Paul himself, the situation in Paul. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the final facts. And we're going to conclude that final facts always include a faithful fiction, Faithful fiction. That's how the Bible works. All right? The Bible's not nonfiction. It's, it's fiction. It's real. It's faithful fiction. God is writing history in this, and the final acts of this will include that. I want to contrast the soldiers with the centurion and Paul. So three contrasts that we'll be looking at, and I'll give you those titles. Again, point one, persistent pride. It always ignores prudent patience. If we're persistent in pride, we're going to ignore prudent patience. This is mainly in verses 1 through 12 that we're looking at this point. I want to contrast with you the, the centurion and Paul at the beginning of this section of Scripture. Now, if you're new to Acts or you're slow to remember where we've left off, Paul is imprisoned by Rome. And therefore, he's protected from the murderous plots of the Jewish people that were near Jerusalem trying to kill him. And he's been on trial multiple times, but he's been found innocent of all accusations every single time that he's been tried. Rather than being let go 
as he could have been, he has chosen to appeal all the way to the top of the judicial Roman hierarchy to Caesar himself. And because he's a citizen, he can do that. And as a Christian missionary, well, he's been called by God, and so he's compelled to do it. So in both ways, this trip is purposeful. Significant background to our passage that you need to know is an explicit reference in chapter 23. And so you know, feel free to turn over to verse 11 of 23 if that helps you. But in Acts 23, 11, when Paul had been ripped up apart almost by the angry Jewish council that couldn't agree about why they were trying him, he was in prison that night, uh, brought in there by the centurion at that time, different centurion. And Jesus appeared to Paul and said this, quote, this is Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord, Jesus, stood by him and said, Take courage. Take courage, Paul. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Well, now, guys, we are boarding the ship to Rome with Paul, just like Jesus said. Which verses 1 through 12 is really focusing, again, on persistent pride in Julius, who we meet, and kind of contrasting that in this first section with Paul's patience, the prudence and the patience of Paul. Now, if you want to uh, note that I used persistence on purpose when it comes to the pride here, um, when something is persistent, it can, it's, it's subtle and under the surface sometimes. It doesn't have to be out in front of you. The centurion that's in verses 1 through 8 here Seems like a really great guy, doesn't he? I mean, at the start here, he really does. And I'm sure that in a lot of ways, he was. To get a grip on his uh, persistent pride that I do want to show you, however, is noticing the cast members of this narrative that are kind of around him. So verse 1, look there again. We learn that the centurion named Julius was of the Augustan cohort. That is an elite group of Syrian uh, uh, Syrian stationed sentries, like uh, military men put there by Rome. And this shows us through Luke's eyes that the value of Paul as a prisoner and also the value of the gospel, that's Luke's intent. By verse two, we're learning that Julius is willing to allow Aristarchus, you see that? We know his name from being, Paul's work in Macedonia, but Luke tells us it's a brother and Christ that has chosen to come with him, to accompany him. And clearly Luke is allowed to be with Paul as well. The centurion allowing this would have been a great courtesy. By verse three, the kindness of Julius is confirmed, right? When he actually trusts Paul to go to his friends, it's likely a local church on a shore to be cared for. Now you'll notice that this is the first Sunday that I actually printed something for you in your in your bulletin there, and uh, it's a map. It's a map, and so you can keep that in front of you. Uh, it's very helpful, I hope, for you this week, but also you can keep it because it makes some comments about the weeks to come. But right there in, in Sidon, they are clearly getting the boat ready in some ways, and so Paul has time, and Julius allows him to go and to be ministered to. Paul likely is ill or is struggling in his physical body because of various beatings um, or maybe some issues with his vision, as we learn about in other texts. But finally, verses four through eight show us that Julius is also able to handle business well. I mean, he gets them on the fated ship, this Egyptian ship that's going to be bound for Italy. And even through difficult sailing, 
Talk about foreshadowing here in these first few verses, right? He keeps things cool. Now you're asking, where's his pride? He said this guy was prideful. He sounds like a great fellow. Well, most persistently proud people are great until they're challenged. <laughs> until they're challenged, right? And verses 9 through 12 really cover a crucial moment for Julius. The discussion and the decision that's made in the verses there, 9 through 12, happens in this small port city that they finally made it to of Fair Havens. Now notice, if you were on the boat in the map and you finally made it to, you know, Sidness there, uh, you know, west of Myra, you should have just kept going right around Greece and hopefully, you know, cut down the trip. But that big dip down underneath Crete, the text told you, was because the winds were coming at them so hard from the north, they just went ahead and kind of took a, you know, crooked route down, and they're trying to get under Crete, hoping the north winds would stop. They're on the south side of the island, and they're at Fair Havens. And so begins this discussion about what should they do next. Now, the thing about Fair Havens that they're at, uh, it's only fair in name. It was really actually a terrible place to stop, especially for winter, because it was a port that was really exposed to the weather. Also, it was not a very large port. So if you have to spend winter there and you're a pagan on a Roman ship or a soldier pagan in the Roman uh, you know, army, you would not be able to enjoy the amenities you'd be accustomed to at a larger port, right? So wintering there, not the greatest idea, sure. And look, Phoenix is not that far, right? I mean, it looks like it's like 50 miles. That's about 50 miles. And they've already come hundreds, and so it seems like an easy decision. Insert our contrast now, right? The persistent pride of, of, of Julius is now going to be contrasted hard by Luke when it comes to Paul. Paul finally speaks up. We could say it like this. If, if persistent pride is leading Julius, we're now going to see that prudent patience is going to lead Paul. And they're going to contrast. So here's the prudence and the patience of Paul. Verse 10, he said, Sirs, respect, right? I perceive that the voyage is going to be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. <laughs> Paul says, basically, hey, guys, we're going to die. That's not a good idea. It's not a good idea for us to sail anymore. He's telling Julius, you need to listen to me and not these other guys. Now, nothing about this statement here implies a divine origin yet. So Luke, Luke is not saying Paul had a dream here and he went and told him. That's going to be later. I mean, he's not even, you know, claiming that he prayed about it, right? Paul's just saying, hey, look, I'm a seasoned traveler. And we know because Paul's written 2 Corinthians prior to this, that this dude's already been shipwrecked three times. And one of those shipwrecks for Paul, he floated around on a piece of wood for 24 hours, a day and a night, while that huge, horrible shipwreck had happened. So Paul's saying, I've been here before. We don't want to do this. This is not smart. Common sense is valuable to the humble and patient. It is a nuisance to the prideful. Let me say that again. Common sense is valuable to the humble and the patient, but it is a nuisance to the prideful. Verse 11, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than what Paul had to say. Now do you see some of the pride creeping up? Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, they would have been fine there. The majority, so we're dealing with the pressure of the, you know, power of people here, decided to put out to sea from there. I mean, start the ominous music, right? It's like, bomb, 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 in this crazy, bad decision. This is the step one of like, oh no, what are you doing? 
This ship is likely a grain ship. We learn that later when they're chunking stuff overboard. It's a moneymaker, right? So it's like loaded down. It was an Alexandrian ship. So all the grain they grew in Egypt, they're trying to ship that stuff to Rome. And so these big ships carrying this, it'd be like all the Amazon ships that are stuck out there bringing everybody's Christmas junk that today people are super upset about because they clicked that button over and over again. And no matter what they did, they couldn't get that thing. Right? So it's like, we're going to get it there despite bad weather because we got to make money. That's what the owner would have said. That's what the pilot would have said. It'll be fine. We need a paycheck. And Julius gives in. Julius does not challenge them. Now, you may see the way of you know, worldliness and make, makes sense here. It appeals to the pride of Julius, right? It feeds the pride of Julius. If there is pride in him, then the bad decision can be justified. But it's subtle, right? It's subtle. And it overlooks the prudent and patient wisdom of Paul. Paul is ignored here because of persistent pride. And this is truly the recipe that this text needs to show us a disaster. Now, the disaster is the next point, suffering. But first, I want to talk about some application before moving on. This may seem small to you and me, but we must realize how often we overlook doing the right thing that God has made very clear to us. And sometimes when he makes things very clear to us, it's not only to us, but everyone around us. We can be just as guilty as Julius is in this text of succumbing to the subtle, sneaking attack of pride in our lives. And we can overlook the destruction we would walk headlong into. Think of it this way. Everyone in the Roman sailing community and even passengers on boats like Paul know you don't sail the Mediterranean during the winter. But yet the majority goes. The majority goes. How many times in your life and in my life has God put a Paul in your path? Maybe he was a preacher. Maybe it was a Bible study. Maybe it was something that you studied in the word or was brought to you and you knew this is the truth of God's word stopping me from what, I want to, what I'm going to do. In Corinthians, Paul writes of it and he says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man, but God is faithful and he will provide a way of escape. Julius missed his way of escape here. I think an application for us is we must always be killing pride because pride is going to be killing us, if not. And so we must look to wisdom, prudence. New Year's resolutions, they're right around the corner. Let's go for it this morning. We know that we should honor Christ with the things we will resolutely decide in the new year. We know those right now, but we do wait, don't we? I mean, if I can speak personally to you with some transparency, we know we ought to honor Christ with our bodies. Our doctors tell us of a future health problem that would occur, but what do we do? Some of us persist in overeating or a lack of exercise. We know it's right to pay more attention to the way the world says, or excuse me, we know it's right to not pay attention to what the world says we need to look like or dress like or adore ourselves like or do with our time. We know that, but we persist, don't we? Sometimes in overspending, maybe to keep up with the latest fashions and fads. We know things like it's a bad decision to stay up late or it's unwise to continue to binge watch something and then our overexhausted selves are frustrated about missing another morning devotional. 
look, this is just a few that I struggle with in my own heart and want to be transparent with you about. But there are numerous others in my own life, and I'm sure yours. I, I would honestly, and I'm probably an application doing you a disservice, making it about anything other than what God has already revealed to you. But I wonder how many of you have stood where Julius stands. A little bit of authority, a little bit of opportunity, some chances to honor and glorify God, but you ignored the prudence of patient wisdom and you moved forward. Well, persistent pride always ignores prudent patience, beloved, but we must grow in our trust in God because here's why. Even when we do that and we ignore the patience that the Lord would have us, God cares enough about his people and about us to not let us escape the consequences. You're like, hold up, what? (laughs) Notice I didn't jump straight to he works everything for your good. Sometimes the best working of God is this whole next point, the largest section of our scripture, the bad. Sometimes the bad and what you can do in studying and understanding the consequences of sin is the best thing. I think that's where the text goes. That's what we see next. The pride of this man will prove very, very costly, but God does have a plan. Entry number two into the journal here. Serious suffering always ignites sovereign salvation. Serious suffering always ignites a sovereign salvation. There's another contrast in the largest section of scripture here in verses 13 to 38. In this, we're really trying to contrast the situation that they're in and Paul. The situation that they're in and Paul. The situation stinks. (laughs) I mean, it's bad. It's really, really bad. It's a make a grown man cry kind of bad, right? You're on this boat and you're a hardened, battled Roman centurion and you're crying for your mommy. That's how dire this story is. You've read it, you've heard it, you remember it. Let's talk about some of it, though, because I want you to consider the facts of how serious the suffering is in this. Okay, here's some that really stand out in this section. Right at the beginning, 13 and 14 tell us that what seemed like smooth sailing all of a sudden turned into a hurricane. Did you see that? Look in the text. Literally, when it talks about this northeaster, Eurachlodon, It's a mix of Greek and Latin, a term that came together that all the sailors of the Mediterranean knew to be the Northeaster, that is the nasty North wind. So this is like like quotable. They named the wind. That sounds like a hurricane, right? When you start putting names on wind, that is dangerous stuff. And so here they are making their 50 mile little North and Western hope toward, look, just Phoenix and what happens? Look at that arrow on your map. God sends or allows this massive hurricane to blow them off course. Verse 15, they're just letting that thing go. (laughs) They tried to let it to not, and they're Elsa on it, and they're just like letting it go, and it is just going, right? It is gone, man. They're like, we're just, we're not even, put the sail down. We're going to ride this thing out. Verse 16, they almost lose their dinghy. You see the ship boat comment thing? Back in the day, the boat that they had, you know, we all have like lifeboats attached to our cruise ships. They just pulled theirs behind these big boats and it would float. But in the middle of a storm, they didn't bring it in quickly and that thing's sinking. So with great difficulty, Luke says, they hauled the dinghy into the boat. Then they do this process in verse 17 called frapping the ship. You know, their ships were held together with wood and pitch. Okay, they weren't bolted. So they would run cables or big ropes underneath and tie them on top and tighten, kind of just 
the hull of the ship, just try to rope that thing together so that the wind won't and the waves won't beat it to death. Notice in verse 17, they're scared of getting towards Sirtis. Sirtis is uh, basically a, a ship graveyard, famously off of the shore of North Africa here, okay? So just north of here, and they're scared that they're blowing so far south. That's how fast they're moving. They're scared that they're going to run into this known ship killer, graveyards of ship, the Sirtis. Dangerous, dangerous shallow waters off the, course, off the northern African coast. Verse 18, stuff is bad enough that they start chunking cargo over, right? These are the finer things. Uh, this word is like the extra clothes and all the stuff that they, you know, the bougie stuff that they brought. That's, get that out of here first. We don't need any of this luxury stuff. We got to lighten the load. Verse 19, the next day, they throw off the tackle. All that money they're going to make when they unload the grain and stuff, they have equipment that they use for that. And so that tackle is that equipment. And they're like, you know what? We'll just figure that out when we get there, hopefully. Throw all the tackle over. And they're still in a bad way. That's some serious suffering, right? That's serious. But wait, it gets worse because all of that just showed their circumstances. That's just what's happening to them. What about their will to live? Look at verse 20. Let's read it again. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest wind lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They had, they had thrown everything over that they could. They had done all that they could to try to like think that they're going to live. And finally, they finally threw out their hope. They gave up. Their will to live is gone. They give up hope. This is serious, guys. I mean, suffering like this, apart from the will of God and understanding, it always ends in this type of despair. Apart from God being the answer, suffering of this magnitude, it will end in despair. However, I want to show you that suffering in this passage, serious suffering, it always, for Christians, of course, ignites sovereign salvation. And this text is an example of that as well. This is your second subpoint here, right? I want you to hear sovereign salvation. If the serious suffering is happening, look what God can work through it. The suffering in this is not wasted. It's used by God, all of it. And he has done something. God has put his righteous ones... Paul and his companions on this vessel. And it is for a purpose, a purpose, not only for them, but for these pagan men around them, for them to learn about what they believe. Paul speaks up. Notice when they are finally on their last leg at the end of their hopelessness, that's when Paul speaks the truth. I want you to analyze his short speech with me here. Listen to the promise that God's gonna save again. Verse 21, I'm gonna be kind of teaching us through this. Men, this is Paul speaking. Make sure you're looking at verse 21. It'll help you to see it. Man, you should have listened to me and, and, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. <laughs> I love that. It's like a little bit of like, I told you so. You know, Paul's like, let's get something out of the way first. I told you that this would happen. I told you so. Okay? I love that. Yet now I urge you to take heart. <laughs> Paul's like, hey, have hope. Be encouraged, guys. Be encouraged. <laughs> I mean, if, just think about the situation, right? Paul's speaking to everybody. They all given up hope. And Paul's like, hey guys, have hope. And Paul is chipper and happy, but it's genuine. Look what he says. For there will be no loss of life among you. Awesome. None of us are gonna die, but only the ship. <laughs> uh, if you're listening, you're like, what? How, do, how does the ship destroy? But we live. 
For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. You should note that Paul is sensitive, even in his language, of how they have related to God before this. That's the clarity Paul has about God being involved in his suffering. It's amazing to me to hear Paul speak that way. You got to remember, this is a speech that he's giving to the leaders, but likely all 200 that can hear are hearing while on board. And he's aware of their unbelief. Verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 24. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now, an amazing thing here, because Paul's life must be spared for the purpose that God has for him in Rome. That's what the angel of the Lord tells him. But also, too, all these unrighteous people, all these unrighteous ones that he's talking to, they're going to have the direct benefit of being saved, their lives being spared from death. So, 25, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it'll be exactly as I have told, as I've been told. Again, he's telling them, don't give up hope. But we must run aground on an island. (laughs) But I got the facts here and we have to crash. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. But trust Yahweh. Can we all just pause for a minute and say, what a word. I mean, it's easy to overlook this, but what faith it must have taken to say this. These, these men are likely just shy of mutiny. All right, they're, just, they're probably just shy of just, you know, just turning into what a debased, unreasonable soul can do when it's pushed to the point of death and it has no more hope. I mean, I think the worst is probably waiting, but the faith it takes for Paul to stand up, much more to believe it, and then to see that it is exactly what they needed. Verse 27 speeds things up by telling us that this storm went on 14 nights. Just let that sink in. Two weeks. I mean, from today until next Sunday is that for us is that weird in between like time where nobody talks about the next like six days, you know, like nobody knows what's going on. No offices are open. Nobody's working. Not really. But like, you know, you think about it. It seems like a long time. And it's twice that. That these men fight on the edge of a hurricane that is pushing them. They're not, they're not doing what they normally do. They're just surviving. And for 14 days, what Paul shared with them gets them by. You need to consider what the word of truth can do in the midst of suffering. God holds out with this word from Paul, a lighthouse to them in 14 days of darkness. And they all cling to it. Now, Paul has spoken about salvation, but now we see something phenomenal that makes me glad that we've actually studied this passage today. You want a miracle on Christmas, let me point something out to you that is amazing in closing this second point about God's sovereign salvation amidst suffering. You see, they get blown off course. Look at your map here, okay? They get blown off course near Fair Havens. And for 14 days, they are not directing the ship anywhere. They cannot see from the storm. As, as we've been told. They're just trying to not die. Yet, God's hand has been in this wind. Do you see how tiny a spot Malta is 
as an island on your map there. Malta, that tiny little island. Now listen, I don't read commentaries during sermons like often. I don't know if I've ever done it here. I did it one time at our sending church, okay? But uh, this brother is too much for me to type and it's just way too cool that I wanted to encourage you with with something in closing this point. But F.F. Bruce, this is his commentary, he reports the findings in here of a man named James Smith. Now James Smith was an experienced yachtman in the late 1800s. What a career. And he wrote a book about this narrative. And the book is called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. And it is literally detailed from a nautical perspective confirmation that that everything is reported in this because you can tell, I mean, you need a sailor's degree to understand a lot of this stuff, right? Like what's a fathom, right? I mean, that, that is what this guy devoted himself to. And quoting from him, Bruce Uh, says this, Smith, the man that did the study, he relates how he made careful inquiries of experienced Mediterranean navigators in order to ascertain the mean rate, the average rate of drift of a ship of this kind, that's in our text, laid to in such a gale. The conclusion which he reached was an average drift of about 36 miles in 24 hours. The soundings that are recorded in verse 28, So look at verse 28. You see how it talks about the fathoms? They gave a sounding and they determined that it was this depth. A fathom is about six feet. And so they get about 20 fathoms, right? 120 feet. They do another sounding a little bit further as they're approaching what they heard as land. And they they find what? 15 fathoms, right? It's getting more shallow. So listen, the soundings in verse 28 that the ship was passing uh, indicate that the ship was passing Korah, a point we know on the east coast of Malta, on her way into St. Paul's Bay. We call, if you go to Malta today, which you can, the bay that you would visit that they're about to go into, guess what they named it? St. Paul's Bay. <laughs> Duh, right? But listen, it's cool. It says, quote, the distance from Clauda to the point of Korah is 476 miles, which at the rate as deduced from the information would have taken 13 days, one hour, and 21 minutes. Then, after carefully reckoning the direction of the ship's course from the direction of the wind, northern, from the angle of the ship's head with the wind, and accounting for the leeway, he goes on, according to these calculations, a ship starting late in the evening from Clauda would, by midnight on the 14th, be less than three miles from the entrance of St. Paul's Bay. So we know, studying the ships that Alexandria had and the way that they navigated through a storm, that God perfectly carried this boat from where he needed it to be all the way across that 400 of the miles in 14 days at that drift that we can calculate. And we know scientifically that he landed it smack dab on this island for a purpose. Now you tell me what sailor has that kind of faith about God's direct involvement in this story. None of them. Despite their lack of faith, despite their hopelessness and distrust in Yahweh, a servant of Yahweh being on the board becomes a direct benefit of them because God is going to protect Paul and Luke and Aristarchus all the way through this storm. It's amazing. It means God was directly involved in controlling the winds and the waves that brought this ship to land where these people are. 
These molten people, we're going to learn next week, get to hear and see and understand the power of the gospel. God blew Paul literally all the way off course so some aborigines in that island could hear who the one true God, Jesus Christ, is. And in the meantime, on the way there, when this huge shipwreck's going to happen, God's after the heart of even these 276 that are on board here. This is our God. This is our God working out in the midst of great suffering something incredible. I mean, if salvation belongs to God, and we conclude that with Jonah, then when the situation looked like death, Paul knew that God was working. And he, hold, he told him, hold out, brother. Hold out, brother and Luke. Hold out, Aristarchus. Hold out, my friends. God will do what he said he will do. And if this doesn't confirm God's word, I don't know what does. How does God relate to you? He does so through his word. We foolishly hunt for a sign, don't we? We want something more. But God shows up in the midst of intense suffering in your life, and he says, I got no sign, nothing fancy. I have what I've given you. What I said is enough. Bank on it. Now, I know that Paul's was extravagant, and it was a personal message. Jesus showed up to him in a vision and taught him this. But Paul uses this vision to point to everyone in the Second Corinthians letter about these kind of things. He says, all these things do is testify to what God has always been saying, to what he said in his son revealed and crucified and risen, and what he is going to continue to say. God's the same yesterday and today and forevermore. His word will not pass away. Flesh and blood, ships and, and grain ships and storms, they'll come, they'll go, they'll do their damage. You know what won't change? God. God won't change. His word promises you that. Quick note about something that's to stand out to us in addition to this. Paul addresses everyone, and we're right to see that. But do you notice that when after he addresses them in verse 35 and 37, we get this new language about eating. Now, some commentators go here, most of them do, and I agree, I'm persuaded to think the same thing. But, you know, Paul preaches generally to everybody there, look, trust in God. Eat, have food, let's strengthen ourselves because tomorrow's the day. I mean, midnight, here we are, you've done the fathoms. I'm telling you, like, here we are, we're about to arrive. But notice that there's this more specific invitation, 35. When he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. 36, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all in persons about 276. Now, I bring this up right here at the close for, for those of you uh, who are in Christ. The cup and the wine, when it comes to communion, they're never mentioned in Acts. So Acts doesn't refer to what we call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. It never mentions the, 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 the drink. It only mentions breaking of bread, okay, in Acts 2 and then 4th. So this is the language throughout Acts that is consistently used. Most scholars would say, and I think I agree, that Paul, he offers not the Lord's Supper to the pagans. He offers to them the belief in the one true God. But he, and, and uh, believing by faith, and Luke, who's there with him, and Aristarchus and any other Christians, they seem to have a little bit of a private meal, a private moment, where they got together there on the boat, and they said, look, break this bread in the presence of all, but breaking it and eating it kind of belonged to them. That is, they wanted to cling to the promises of Jesus in this moment, 
And of course, this is way away from the local church idea. And so, you know, please, you know, don't, don't be mistaken here to think, oh, we can do the Lord's Supper wherever we want. That's not what this is saying, right? Pajama communion is not a thing. However, I do think that this is the word of God showing us that in a dire moment, Paul and his Christian brothers, they said, we're going to believe in God and we're going to remember him. It seems like Luke included that with intentionality, especially separating it in verse 37. Then they all were encouraged and they ate also. Now, I say that to you to say serious sufferings always are going to ignite sovereign salvation. Well, that's good. We want to see lost people get saved, right? I mean, we're hoping all these pagans get saved. That's the truth. Paul hopes that. But you know what else is happening if they don't? He has his brothers and sisters in Christ. I think this is good for us to see. I hope you agree. The last act is much shorter. It's 39 through 44. These are the final facts. We've got to wrap this, this thing up, okay? We've got we to gotta wreck this ship. And, uh, you know, final facts always include faithful fiction. This is very faithful fiction. This is real stuff. We're going to contrast the soldiers now, and we're going to do it not with Paul only, but with the centurion also. It's pretty encouraging. Here's the facts. Let's uncover it, okay? Understanding this ending together is important. Paul, basically having become the ship's uh, chaplain at this point, slash captain. I mean, he's calling the shots, right? Which is so cool to me. Uh, he's, he's basically just in control because God said it, and they're all like, you've been right so far. Like, let's do this. When hope seems to run out, God granted leadership to the one who maintained hope and faith in him. Now, you'll notice that the centurion has already stepped up prior to these verses. Some of the soldiers made up a lie. They were like, hey, we're going to hop in the dinghy and we're going to let it down. We're going to go secure the bow. We're going to secure the front of the ship. And they learned that that was actually just them trying to go and escape. And Paul tells the centurion, listen, God said he's delivering all of us. If they do that, I cannot guarantee everybody's safety. And the centurion, learning his lesson finally, what did he do in these earlier verses? He said, nope soldiers, and he cut the dinghy off. Like he cut off the, 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 the spare boat and they lost it, which I'm sure Paul was probably like, oh, wasn't thinking that far, but okay. Like, right. Like, I mean, we're, we got it. I mean, if I'm Paul, I'm thinking that, but Paul's probably not. Cause you know, he's all like, listen, we are going to be okay. Regardless, it's interesting that Centurion is already showing some signs of listening. But now here in this last section, it gets really explicit. I mean, here, the, the bow has finally stuck. Daylight comes, and when it comes, they're pointing toward the island. They throw up that front sail in the front of this big boat, and they're gathering steam, buddy, right? And they're done. I mean, they're excited, ready to get off of this. You know, they're still in the hurricane, but they're ready to get off of the ocean, and they're going to dock this thing on the beach. But man, they run smack dab, a good ways off the shore into the reef, right? Into the reef. And as you see in the text there, the back of the boat is finally being ripped to pieces, I mean, this is the end of the Titanic scene, y'all. I mean, it's going down, okay? It's going down, and everybody's panicking, and they're barely, barely held together with leadership. And then a few, you know, stand up, and what's happening? Well, they decide, the soldiers are like, we got to kill these prisoners. Because in Roman days, if you're responsible for a prisoner, and you don't get them in the transport, you don't get them to where they need to be, and they escape, Whatever their punishment would have been, it's yours. You take the punishment that they would have had. And some of these guarantee would have either been jailed forever or killed, killed under Rome that are also being transported. And so they are really not wanting these guys to escape. And so they form this plan. But look who steps up. And look who now gets 
written in with some faithful fiction himself. Julius, right? The centurion, 43, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on the pieces of the ship. So if you can't, so if you can swim, go, right? Start swimming. If you can't, wait for a big enough piece of the ship that floats to be within your eyesight and then jump. <laughs> jump, grab it, and get to the island, all 276 of you. Now, everyone's making a mad dash, and what happens? Well, listen, the facts become a very faithful fiction. The reality of God's plan is fully seen. Every single person, all 276 of them, make it to the shore, just like God said would happen. Isn't that amazing? You best believe in this moment. Hindsight always 2020, right? Rarely is it so clear in the moment, and it is here. If the sermon teaches us anything at this point, it should teach us to trust God. I mean, that's simple, but it should teach us to trust God. Brother and sister, in closing today, how do you trust God when you are one of the three? Maybe you're the sinful, rebellious Jonah struggling under the weight of the storm. Maybe you're the stubborn disciples, scared to death in fear of what will happen. Maybe you're like Paul. You need to persevere and you need to continue. The Lord tells us exact answers to what we need to do in Matthew 12. I'll share this with you in closing. In the presence of his disciples, Jesus speaks about Jonah. Listen to what he says. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 12, 38, uh, answered, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Paul's and say, maybe don't we all? Especially in suffering, right? We want to see something, something we can put our hands to. But these say, you know, they want a sign from him. But he answered them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment day with this generation and condemn it. But they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, I tell you, something greater than Jonah is here. What's Jesus getting at? Look, in this text that you just read, Paul knew that something greater than Jonah was, was with them. Paul knew the book of Jonah and a great ship that was in a great storm that then a great fish swallowed a terrible sinner and that that sinner, by the grace of God, after three nights, was expunged onto the shore, thrown up, vomited out in a resurrection of types. So Paul knew that Jonah was provided for. But even greater than Jonah, Paul knew that Jesus had been consumed into the earth, dead, laid in the greatest of the grave, deeper than the ocean's grave, right? Death itself. And that he rose from the grave. And three days later, he was spat out, right, of his own power, and he was new, right? And Christ, having risen, went to heaven and has ascended. And Paul was the type of person that knew that in that moment, Jesus was still in control of the winds and the waves. He didn't fear. Why? His faith in Christ. Paul knew, and he did something with it. God stands against our persistent pride. It's true even when he offers his prudent patience and we fail to recognize it. Even if our failure leads to serious suffering, God provides sovereign salvation. Why? For us to make our final facts about our life 
to be a part of his faithful fiction. That's the story of Acts 27. I hope it encourages you today. Let's pray and respond in song to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text and all of its uh, just technical detail. It's amazing, God, that you work through every single lap of every single ocean wave on the side of that ship. So Lord, will you help us to remember that you've worked in every ticking minute of this moment. You're working, God, in every single thing that we do in this life. Whether it's doctor's appointments that we face, with fear or hope, whether it's times that we spend with our families in fear or in hope, or whether it's times that we're worried about storms that we're facing or will face, or through great suffering, through trial, through all things that are coming our way, we know that we can look to Jesus. He really is at the helm. Father, if this ship that got blown off course, Lord, if it's any indication of our lives, Help us to have faith to believe that in that 14 days, God, you were piloting it the whole time. Father, let that be an encouragement to us. Father, when we seem wave-tossed and confused about life or what we're doing, help us to rest in your sovereign care. You really are for us and not against us. We thank you for that, and we pray you'd help us to believe that together as we sing and as we pray things dear to your heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.